everybody, welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I thought I would talk about a band that probably a lot of you remember from back in the day. I'm going to be talking about the Spin Doctors, and I wanted to know how they came up with their amazing debut album, some of their amazing singles like Two Princes and Little Miss Can't Be Wrong because, listen... Two Princes has remained one of my favorite songs from the 90s for years. I can remember this playing on the radio back in the day all of the time. Like, it was everywhere. You could not escape this tune. But honestly, I was okay with that because it's remained one of my favorite songs from that time period. So without further ado, I am going to tell you the backstory just a little bit of singer Chris Barron because this is going to set up nicely to the entire ethos of the Spin Doctors. So singer Chris Barron was actually born in Honolulu, Hawaii, where his father was stationed during the Vietnam War. So Chris would actually spend his childhood mostly in New York, and then he moved to Australia for over three years when he was eight. So he was kind of spanning everywhere across the map at this point. Then after some time in Australia, his family moved back to the U.S. where he attended Princeton High School in Princeton, New Jersey. And it was here in high school that he would become friends with this guy named John Popper. And John Popper would eventually become one of the founding members of the Blues Traveler. They're kind of like jam, a jam, kind of bluesy, folksy kind of band, if you will. So the two of them, they meet up in high school and they start to play music together. So after going to college in Virginia, Chris later then returned to Princeton, New Jersey, and he got a job at a restaurant. So it was kind of here where he would work at the restaurant to make his money, but then on the side, he would also do his music. That's very typical for up-and-coming musicians or even up-and-coming like artists or actors or something like that. You know, you have a job on the side that makes you money, but then you focus on your passion kind of at night. And it was during this time in Chris's life that he wrote the tunes, Jimmy Olsen's Blues and Two Princes. So one night, a couple years later, the Blues Travelers, they become a band, John Poppers and that band. The Blues Travelers were in town. After hanging out for a night and hearing Chris's songs that he wrote, Jimmy Olsen's Blues and Two Princes, John invited Chris to move in with him in New York City. So... Chris said, great, that's an awesome opportunity for me to move out there, to get more ears on my music. Awesome. So Chris moves to New York City in 1988 with only $100 and an acoustic guitar. And he became the singer for the band called Trucking Company with John Popper playing harmonica. Also, the amazing Canadian guitarist Eric Shankman was also a part of this band called Trucking Company. So Eric was kind of actually a guitar aficionado in his own right, by age 10, he came down to New York City. He was having the time of it, and they brought him along on the band. So it's starting to form what is now the Spin Doctors. John would eventually leave this band to focus on the Blues Traveler, of course. And by the spring of 1989, the trucking company changed their name to Spin Doctors, and they brought on Aaron Combs on drums and Mark White on bass. And what I thought was really interesting was Mark had actually previously turned down an offer to join Living Color. Yeah, you know that band that does Cult of Personality, one of the greatest rock songs from the 90s? Well, he was going to be in Living Color, but he turned them down to play with the Spin Doctors. 
He would have made actually a really good basis, I think, for living color, but it had to be that he was with the spin doctors. So that's just kind of like the basic backstory of how the spin doctors came together. Now that the band, the Spin Doctors, are officially put together, they would travel around to local bars and college campuses in a rented-out van that Chris's dad took out a loan on for them to use as transportation to get around from venue to venue with their equipment, so that was really cool. So they were just a small-time band trying to get some ears and attention onto them. They were trying their best. They slowly but surely would gain a sizable audience over time, And they were loyal people, like they knew that the spin doctors were friends with the blues travelers. And there were a lot of times where both bands would share a bill for a gig on certain nights, like spin doctors would open for the blues travelers and they were friends already. So it was just like a nice time with friends. So that's how spin doctors acquired their early audience was predominantly through like jam bands and through that kind of like hippie, folky, like Grateful Dead kind of cult following. That's how they gained that kind of fan base. So it was an interesting shift in how they turned to that kind of like live band, jam band into their first album, which is kind of far from that. But it makes sense kind of in the story that we're kind of going along here. So I'll give you a bit more information as we go along here in the story. But That's how they acquired their audience at first. And they actually encouraged their fans to record the concerts, to bootleg the music and to spread it around, which you wouldn't think would be the move. Like you would think that a lot of artists would actually say, no, 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 don't record this. Don't record it. I don't want it out there. Like, don't do it. You buy our music how you would normally. Don't bootleg and spread it around. Like, no, they were actually encouraging their fans to record the music and to spread it around because back then that's how you kind of got word to everybody on what was going on and you were the new up and coming band like it was by word of mouth and so it makes sense this was before the widespread use of the internet and itunes and spotify and things like that like that's how it was known you would make a mixtape or you would record on a cassette tape or a cd and you would spread it around to your fans like or your friends That's how it was done. So back then they were like, yes, please record our concerts, bootleg them, spread them around, do whatever you have to do. So over time, they eventually got the attention of Epic Records, which is a really popular record label back in the day. So they get signed with Epic Records in 1990 at the turn of the decade. And they released their debut EP called Up for Grabs Live, which was recorded live at the Wetlands Preserve in Lower Manhattan. And this was released in January of 1991. So the original idea for their very first release, which was this EP, was to actually be an official studio recording of Two Princes plus a couple of their other original songs. That's what the record label wanted to do. But the Spin Doctors were like, listen, we're a live band. We are a great live jam band. We think that our first release to the public officially should be a collection of some of the stuff that we do live. So that's why their first EP was a live album of sorts. So they wanted to do that for the fans and it made sense to them. So the Spin Doctors, 
They were known for their lengthy live shows, again, going into long, drawn-out jams, similar to that of the Grateful Dead, Fish, the Blues Traveler, bands kind of in that, like, jam band kind of ilk that I can't really think of other than the Grateful Dead. That makes a lot of sense. And also, they gained that cult following that would be kind of prevalent with the Grateful Dead and Deadheads and Fish and things like that. This is kind of their usual spot. So it's interesting that they would then switch to the rock that they put out on their first album. It's just very interesting. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's kind of what they wanted to do for their first EP. Now, the Spin Doctors debut their first ever studio album with Pocketful of Kryptonite, and this was released the same year in August of 1991. And the Spin Doctors found themselves wanting to stay out on the road and tour more once the album had been released, right? They just wanted to be out there with the people. That's where they found their home was out on the road touring, you know, doing these long drawn out jam concerts. They didn't really want to be stuck in the studio because that's what the record label wanted. They wanted them to come back into the studio after some time of touring and to record another album. That's kind of what it was like. You would record an album, you would release the album, you tour the album, all right, then you come back and record more for the record label. But they were really defiant in that whole kind of way about things. They really wanted to stay out and tour as much as possible. And it's really sad in a way because they understood really, really well that at this time, grunge music was king and their label Epic Records were the home of Pearl Jam. And they would often compare in a negative way, the spin doctors to how they were so different from what was needed. Like if you can imagine back in the day in the early 90s, if some of you were around for that, then you would know firsthand. But if you don't, then let me explain. This whole new wave of grunge music that kind of took on its own anti-establishment punk kind of bravado, it was very different from the norm, the normie kind of music, right? It was a whole scene. Grunge music and that kind of alternative rock was very, again, anti-establishment, anti-authoritarian. They were very much so anti-man. And so it was a movement. It was much of a physical appearance-wise movement with the long hair and the flannel and the boots and stuff, as well as with the music. So the record labels were starting to catch on to this. At first, they were defiant in that kind of grunge rock music. But now that Nirvana and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots and Mudhoney and the Melvins, now that they were all putting out music that was very popular to the people, now they were starting the record labels. Now they were starting to catch on that this was a big moneymaker. So they wanted more bands like that. They wanted more Pearl Jams. They wanted more Nirvanas. They wanted more Chris Cornells and Lane Staley's. So you can imagine that clean cut kind of normie looking guys like the spin doctors that are jam band and and they're trying to like be a live band, you know, dressed in their kind of hippie clothing and their long hair. Like you could imagine that the record labels were like, these guys are the most bland as can be like, no, they were so not cool (laughs) with the spin doctors and it was boggling to them mind-boggling because they were getting compared to the blues travelers predominantly and it's just interesting because epic records was so confounded and so puzzled 
on how do we get the spin doctors more of a mainstream face in the public? How do we get them to stand out more? They actually went to the Blues Travelers people, Epic Records, and they asked, like, how do we do this? Like, the spin doctors are linked to you. How do we get them to break away from that link and make them stand out on their own? They don't sound like Pearl Jam. How do we break them from this kind of jam band, kind of hippie, clean cut looking image? How do we get them away from that? And it's really, really sad because the spin doctors themselves were very much so aware of this kind of debate, I guess is kind of the word that comes to mind. But they, they were aware of that discrepancy that they weren't like that. And so they would hide from their record label that things were okay. They were on the road so much to get away from it all. And they were like, oh, yeah, 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 we're fine. But like inside, they actually were struggling because they couldn't accept being compared negatively to what the record label and what the people at large wanted and versus what they were. And that's really sad, but they didn't want to like conform to that. And they were their own thing. And to be fair, I can totally respect the spin doctors for wanting to be their own entity and to not kind of give in to what was normal or very popular at the time. And again, you have to understand that kind of grunge music was very popular for a period of time. And I think it kind of faded once Kurt Cobain passed away in 1994. And by the mid 90s, for sure, 95, 96, normal kind of post grunge kind of rock would start to then become popular. And, and bands like the Spin Doctors and like Sugar Ray and like the Blues Travelers and the Goo Goo Dolls and all of that stuff, like they were then becoming popular. So it's just kind of unfortunate, I suppose, that the Spin Doctors like found themselves in the middle of this transition in music at the time in the 90s and they were struggling. And I feel really bad for them. Can you imagine kind of being pit against these other big bands and your own record label is trying to make these comparisons and it's just it's it's a struggle and I suppose that's why maybe their first album was so good because it was genuinely good it was very rock and roll it was very rock it was great it wasn't grunge or alternative rock but it was very good it was mainstream and this is the thing that's so sad as well their record label would not push their hit singles to be out they were like slacking so much with the Spin Doctors that they would not even release the hit singles at all. It was rock radio stations, predominantly one local radio station in Virginia at the time, that was playing the singles Little Miss Can't Be Wrong and Two Princes in mid-1992. So this was months after the album had been released. Not a lot of people were privy to it. The album sold initially 60,000 copies, which is a decent amount for a debut album. It's not bad. And they were growing their fan base out on the road and things like that. But their label wasn't pushing for them at all. It's like they were kind of just letting it flop, which is really unfortunate. But the local radio stations were really the ones that were trying to pioneer for more of a, a widespread reach of the Spin Doctors by playing their two biggest tunes. And it was really interesting, this radio station in Virginia, they actually wrote a letter to Epic Records and said, basically, you're kidding yourselves if you don't think that the spin doctors can have a big hold over the people. You have to be kidding yourselves if you don't think that these two songs are good. You need to push these two songs to be released 
and to be heard more to the people. You got to do more to promote this band. You have to do right by them. And eventually the label was getting privy to what was happening. They were seeing that the people actually liked the Spin Doctors. They were like, okay, well, now that we see that, now we got to make music videos for these songs. And now we got to put them on Saturday Night Live, which the band did go on Saturday Night Live in October of 1992 to promote the album. And of course, all of this boosted the sales of the album, and it helped to gain them a widespread, more mainstream audience, and it totally went international. I think their first album went very international. Um, It was a hit. It was a very big success on the own right of the fans and then the radio stations that helped to promote the band because the record label was failing. The record label was absolute shit for trying to promote this album on any means. And that's horrible. (laughs) That's just so horrible. So I think it also comes down to maybe the Spin Doctors were mismanaged. And that's unfortunate because this album was so great. And then the rest of their albums couldn't live up to the hype, unfortunately. But after a period of time, the album landed at the top of the Billboard chart. And it's currently the band's best-selling album. And it was eventually certified five times platinum. So give it up to the Spin Doctors for really trying their best to hold their own. Because according to them, they were the quote-unquote redheaded stepchild of their label. Again, they understood that they were different from everybody else, even from the bands on their own record label, i.e. Pearl Jam. They were aware of this, but they still held their own. You gotta give it to the Spin Doctors. They really did the thing. So the album's title is a quote from the opening track of Jimmy Olsen's Blues, Pocketful of Kryptonite. And this tune is a song that's narrated from the point of view of Jimmy Olsen, who is a character from Superman, right? If you guys understand, Jimmy Olsen's just kind of one of the, from my understanding and recollection, kind of just one of the non-main characters, I think, in the world of Superman, because Superman is in with Lois Lane, right? Of course. Jimmy Olsen has a thing for Lois Lane, and he is talking in the narration of Jimmy Olsen saying, listen, Lois Lane, you don't need no Superman. Come on downtown and stay with me tonight. I got a pocket full of kryptonite, which is Superman's weakness, basically meaning Superman ain't got shit on me. Come over here, girl. Come over here. Hang out with me for a moment. I got a pocket full of kryptonite. If he come over here, he gonna die. So don't even worry about it. And um, what I thought was really interesting as well that I didn't even really notice until I was researching this episode was the album cover is a phone booth, right? And this is interesting The phone booth refers to the fact that Clark Kent, who is the alter ego of Superman, he goes into a phone booth to change into his Superman costume, which I was like, whoa, that is such a meta kind of link to the whole Superman theme of the album. I was like, whoa, that didn't even really hit me until I was researching this. I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Totally. So it all kind of ties in together. So It's kind of difficult because there wasn't really a whole lot of information for me to gather about the individual songs and how they came about necessarily. I tried my best. Um, So I have a little bit of information I just wanted to share with you guys about Two Princes and Little Miss Can't Be Wrong because those are their two biggest tunes. So the inspiration behind Little Miss Can't Be Wrong is a story that was stated by Chris Barton, who is the singer of the band. And he said that the song was inspired by his relationship with his stepmother. And he was not a fan of his stepmother. He hated his stepmother. And he described his stepmother as a quote-unquote malignant narcissist. 
So Chris actually tweeted in 2019 about the song's creation, writing, My stepmom told me I'd be a janitor, nothing wrong with that, and live in the basement of a school and play guitar for the rats. I wrote a song about her. It's called Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. It's been played on the radio three million times. So essentially, his stepmother told him he would be shit for nothing, his guitar and his music would bring him nothing, he'd be playing music to the rats, and he'd be a janitor all his life. And he said, I don't think I can handle this. And he said, I am going to write a song about you, and it's going to go viral, as they say. And it did. So there you go. Okay, so the next song is Two Princes. And again, I just... When I think about my childhood and the 90s, I think about this song and it brings me so much happiness. It really is one of my favorite songs of all times, point blank, period, but one of my favorite songs for sure from this time. So Two Princes was ranked at number 41 on VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of the 90s, which is stupid. I think it should be a lot higher than 41 out of 100. Conversely, it was ranked at number 21 on Blender Magazine's 50 Worst Songs Ever and Fuck you, Blender Magazine. Who even are you? Number 21 out of 50 for the worst songs of all time? No. How dare you? How dare both of these publications? VH1, number 41 out of 100? No. I can't accept that. And also, 21 out of 50 for the worst songs? No. Absolutely not. That just goes to show that a lot of the time, music critics get it wrong. Pay no attention to that. <laughs> Just remember that Two Princes is one of the greatest songs of all time. Thank you very much. So what I found interesting about the band as a whole, but in this song in particular, which I, I mean, yeah, it makes sense, but I kind of didn't really correlate this until I learned about this, was Chris, the singer, he was a literature fanatic. He was obsessed with fantasy novels um, and predominantly Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Like he was all about the fantasy aspect, kind of like Magic the Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, kind of that whole like kings and wizards and castles and princesses and um, mythical stories. He's, he's such a big fan of that. And he seemingly has always been because, again, Two Princes was written back when he had gotten out of college. And he was kind of doing what he needed to do in in the restaurant business. And then on the side, he would make music. So this was written in a very early point in his life. And he was very much so into that kind of literature. And he explained in this quote, I love The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. I was really into fantasy fiction and stuff like that. I wrote that song when I was 19. So I was still coming out of childhood. And as a child, I loved wizards and kings and queens and princes and princesses and stuff like that. And I loved Shakespeare. I already was way into Shakespeare. So I gravitated towards that kind of imagery just because I liked books and poems from that time period. And yeah, absolutely. The whole song is predominantly about, hey, this prince ain't got this and I ain't got this, but who will you marry? So the whole just go ahead now part of the song actually comes from a saying that one of their friends used to say. So there was a friend of the band named Mickett Wilder, and he was the older brother of bass player Dave Wilder. So the story goes that one day Chris was working as a busboy at this restaurant when he reconnected with a girl that he liked from high school, and she wanted to meet up with him that night. And when his shift ended, Chris ran into Mickett, and he 
explain to him, oh my God, I just ran into the girl from high school. She wants to go out on a date with me. Like, what do I do? And Mick had said, just go ahead with that. Just go ahead now. And I thought that was really interesting. The whole thing is like Mickett was like the one that they all looked up to. Apparently, Mickett set the trends in terms of how the spin doctors would dress and talk, interestingly enough. So that whole just go ahead now was put into the song kind of as an homage to his friend, which I thought was really cool. And one last bit of information on this song in particular that I didn't have any idea about was this song actually originally was played a lot faster. But when the band came time to record the song in the studio, they slowed it down to what we now know it as now. And drummer Aaron Combs recalled, there are certain songs when you find the right tempo, all of a sudden the lyrics come out. It feels right and I think with Two Princes, we really lucked out. It's one of those things we got in the studio, found a good tempo, we've recorded it, everything just really came together. It's very simple. There's not a lot of stuff on it. Somehow the sound and feel we got, we just lucked out and found the perfect thing. And yeah, I absolutely agree 100%. It's just funny how these songs just kind of come together and they become massive hits. And I was just curious to know, like, how did the Spin Doctors come up with this album and make it so big? Now, I researched a little bit, not a whole lot, because I wanted to mostly stick to their debut. I researched a little bit more into the aftermath of this album, and again, things started to fall apart pretty quickly after the release of their second album, which did not as great as their first. And from my recollection, Eric, the guitarist, he quit the band after their second album was released, so things were already faltering, they were already falling apart. They couldn't get the mainstream attention that was coming to them from their first album, and again, they were struggling to maintain their speed and their type of music comparatively to what was popular with alt-rock and with grunge music at the time. It was very hard to keep up because it was hot off the heels of their debut album from the early 90s and that kind of music, the alt rock and the grunge was so popular, it just, it, it couldn't manage to keep up. And of course, the singer Chris, his voice um, was starting to have some problems and so he was having a hard time even attaining the voice that he had originally. That's, that's the truth. He had something wrong with his voice and it couldn't get back to normal, but I think after some time and some rehabilitation, I think eventually he did get back to at least somewhat what his voice could do back then. So unfortunately, the spin doctors just couldn't live up to the hype that they doled out with their first album. Um, so that's kind of the fadeaway point of the spin doctors. But as a whole, that is the spin doctors and how they won everyone over with their debut album and how they gave two middle fingers up to their record label, and they just stuck out to be the band that they are, heart and soul, and they couldn't give a damn. And I have to, again, respect them wholeheartedly for keeping with their guns and doing the music that they wanted to do and doing it their way. Because I would say, even though they faded away predominantly after especially their second album, that you would rather go out your own way instead of the label just dropping you completely and you falter and you try to be something you're not and you falter anyway. They still stuck to their guns through and through and they went out on their own kind of way. So I have to respect them for that. But that in a nutshell is the story of the Spin Doctors. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that you guys learned something today that you hadn't known about before. 
Very interesting story. Very fascinating. I love the Spin Doctors. For some reason, if you haven't heard of the Spin Doctors and you've made it this far, please go and listen to their debut album, Pocketful of Kryptonite. The whole thing. The whole entire thing is so good. And it still stands, actually, in today's terms. I think, actually, it sounds pretty fresh to me. And it sounds really good because... You know, there's a lot of different things that's happening in the music industry right now that I'm not a big fan of, but I still love that old kind of 90s rock sound from back in the day, and I think it needs to make a comeback, personally. So please check out The Spin Doctors, listen to their music, love them, and appreciate them for what they are. I hope you guys have an awesome day, and I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. But before... I say goodbye officially. I just want to say if you want to follow me more and you want more music content, I have a blog, which I will leave the link down below in the description. I post album reviews on there. I post a lot of music content on there that I don't talk about or share on my podcast. So if you're curious, the link is down below. And also, of course, I have Twitter and Instagram if you want to keep up with me on there for any more music news or just keep up with what I'm doing with the show and the podcast and things like that. Links are in the description. But yeah, have an awesome day and I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. 